this past January, the first Sunday of 2019, we began our series through the little letter of James, and, and hopefully we've learned from it. This morning, we're going to do, I, I don't always do this when we study through a book, but I thought it important that we do a, a recap. Sometimes we get so focused on the verse-to-verse exposition that we miss the big picture. So uh, today's going to be a recap uh, of the book of James. And, and as we've seen, Christianity is not just head knowledge. Christianity is lived out in everyday life. It's a practical faith, one that produces good works in those who are truly saved. And as we've seen from beginning to end, James is calling for true, genuine, saving faith. Because the truth of the matter is, it's frightening, but throughout church history, there have always been tares amongst the wheat. There's always been that rocky and shallow and thorny soils that produce no spiritual fruit. There are those who draw near to God with their words, but their hearts are far from Him. There are those for whom God is near to their lips, but far from their mind. As James says, there are those who are hearers of the word, but not doers of it. And so to help people avoid being deceived, James has given us a series of tests by which we can evaluate our faith. And true saving faith in chapter 1 is, is marked by its proper response to trials, to temptations, to the word of God and God's standard of holy living. In chapter 2, genuine saving faith is seen in its response to people from all social classes, the wealthy as well as the poor, and it's seen in a demonstration of good works. Chapter 3 gives us the truth that saving faith is seen in proper speech. It's seen in wisdom. It's seen by not being a friend of the world. Chapter 4, you know, I'm really going through this quickly. We're going to be done in no time, right? Chapter 4, now, don't get your hopes up. Lunch isn't until noon, right? Chapter 4 gives us the signs of salvation uh, through humility and submission to God and His will. And then in chapter 5, true saving faith is shown by having a proper view of finances and material things and by truthfulness in all that we do. And it's those kind of benchmark tests which we can measure our faith against. And at the very core of this book is the evangelistic invitation to those whose faith has not lived up to the test that James has given us. And in chapter 4, he exhorts those with a false faith and he says, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and what? And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, he says, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So, so that's a, a quick overview and no, we're not done. We're going to have you watch a recap of this little letter by video form which they do a good job, and we, I haven't followed their, their outline completely, but I think they do a much better job of recapping than I would do. So watch the video. 
the letter of James, or at least that's his name in English. If you look in the Greek, you will see that his name is Yaakobas, which translates his Hebrew name Yaakov. And that's why most ancient and modern translations render his name as Jacob. That's what we're going to call him in this video. Now, there are many Jacobs in the New Testament. Two of them belong to Jesus's inner circle of the 12 disciples. But this letter comes from the Jacob, who was the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, we learn this Jacob's story from the book of Acts and from Paul's letters. After Peter moved on from Jerusalem to go start new churches, Jesus's half-brother Jacob rose to prominence as a leader in the mother church in Jerusalem. It was made up mostly of Messianic or Christian Jews. This was the first Christian community ever, and we know that it fell on hard times during the 20 years that Jacob was its leader. There was a famine that led to great poverty in the region, and these Messianic Jews were being persecuted by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But through it all, Jacob was known as a pillar of the Jerusalem church. He was also known as a peacemaker who led with wisdom and courage until he was tragically murdered. And in this book, we have the legacy of Jacob's teaching and wisdom condensed into a short and very powerful work. The book begins like a letter. He greets all the Messianic Jews who are living outside the land of Israel. But this does not read like one of Paul's letters where he addresses specific problems in one local church. Rather, this book is a summary of Jacob's sage wisdom for any and every community of Jesus' followers. And Jacob's goal isn't to teach new theological information. Rather, he wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. Jacob's wisdom has been heavily influenced by two sources. The first is Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of God, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which he's constantly echoing and quoting in the book. The second key influence is the biblical wisdom book of Proverbs, especially the poems in Proverbs 1 through 9. Jacob literally grew up with Jesus and with the book of Proverbs. And so now his own teaching sounds like them. It's stamped by their language and imagery. The book consists of short, challenging wisdom speeches that are full of metaphors and easy to memorize one-liners. And in essence, Jacob is calling the Messianic community to become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. The body of the book is in chapters 2 through 5, which consist of 12 short teachings that call God's people to wholehearted devotion to the way of Jesus. And altogether, they don't develop one main idea in a linear way. Each teaching kind of stands alone and concludes with a catchy one-liner. But all of these teachings are connected through key repeated words and themes. It's really cool. At the opening of the book's body, there are two teachings. First, about favoritism and love. Jacob exposes how we tend to show favor to people who can benefit us, and we neglect people who can't, usually because they're needy. Jacob says this is the opposite of love as Jesus defined it. He goes on to show what genuine faith does and does not look like. So if someone says that they have faith in God, but neglects people who are needy or poor, this person's faith is dead, he says. Their actions betray what they say they believe, and genuine faith always results in obedience to Jesus' teachings. Now, scattered throughout the body of the book, we find three different places where Jacob develops Jesus' own teaching about our words. So, with the same mouth, we unleash pain upon people and then go offer praise to God. So messed up. 
And also, we judge people and then go talk badly about them behind their backs. And we also all tend to distort the truth to our own advantage. How we talk about people opens up a window into our hearts and our core values. Our words tell the real truth about our character. Jacob also believes that God's kingdom community, as Jesus taught about it, is the kind of place where the divisions created by wealth and social status are dismantled. So he warns first about the arrogance that wealth can create in people who believe it will be around forever. He says, no, your wealth will one day rot just like you. In contrast, God's people are to live with patience and hope for Jesus' return to set all things right. And this should inspire a life of faith-filled prayer. Now, this part of the book, all of these teachings, they're so powerful, and there's way more than we have time for in this video. But seriously, read all of them and slowly. Now, placed in front of these 12 wise teachings is the introductory chapter. It's a flowing stream of wise teachings and one-liners, and they're designed to sum up the main ideas of the entire book. This chapter actually introduces you to all the key words and themes that you're going to meet in chapters 2 through 5. Jacob opens by saying that he knows from personal experience life is hard. He was martyred, after all, not long after writing this letter. But he believes that life's trials and hardships are actually paradoxical gifts that can produce endurance and shape our character. God can do amazing work inside of us in the midst of suffering and help us become perfect and complete. Now, that word perfect, it's really important for Jacob. He repeats it seven times in the book. In biblical Hebrew and in Greek, this word refers to wholeness. It means living a completely integrated life where your actions are always consistent with the values and beliefs that you've received from Jesus. Jacob knows that most of us actually live as fractured people with big inconsistencies in our character. We are all more compromised than we want to admit. However, God is on a mission to restore fractured people to make them whole. And it begins with wisdom, the ability to see my hardships through a new perspective. God will generously give this kind of wisdom to people who ask for it in faith without doubting God's character. And when we realize our humble and frail place before God, we are forced to choose between anxiety or trust. And true wisdom means choosing to believe that God is good despite my circumstances. So if it's poverty that's forcing you into hard times in life, Jacob says, try and view it as a gift that forces you to trust in God alone. And besides, wealth is fleeting. It's all going to pass away like wildflowers in the summer heat. And so when we do fall into hard times, don't accuse God. Rather, let your circumstances teach you what Jesus taught about God's character, that the Father is generous, that he's there to meet us in our pain, and that he's trustworthy. It's this God who through Jesus has given us new birth to become new kinds of humans who can face their suffering with total trust in the Father, just like Jesus did. And this new humanity is something we discover when we not only listen to God's word, but do what it says. Jacob calls God's word here the perfect Torah of freedom. He's referring here to the greatest command of the Torah as passed on to us through Jesus, that he freed us to love God and love our neighbor. And Jacob shows practically what that kind of love looks like. It means speaking to others in a kind and loving way. It means serving the poor. And it means living with wholehearted devotion to God alone. Now you can see how this opening chapter contains all the key words and ideas explored more deeply in the 12 teachings of chapters 2 through 5. 
Jacob immersed himself in the wisdom of Jesus and of the Proverbs, and he's given us a great gift in this book of his own wisdom. This is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. And that is what the book of James, or Jacob, is all about. Hopefully, as you watch that, it brought back some of the teachings that we've gone through as we've gone through this. And, uh, you know, I could leave it at that, but I'm a preacher, so I won't. When we opened our series on this, we talked about three myths that this book dispels. And if I was really mean, I would give you a quiz right now and see if you could remember from that first sermon what those three myths were, but I'm, I'm not that mean. The first myth was that trials are bad. I mean, naturally, we think of bad, you know, trials, they're not good. We don't look forward to them. We don't want them. But as we've gone through the book of James, we've learned differently, right? James describes trials as the way to maturing in the Christian faith because they cause us to do what? To consciously depend on God, even though we don't always know the reason why trials come to our life. But those tough times strengthen our faith. Uh, they cause us to practice putting our trust in God for things we can't immediately see. We know that he's working things together so that we become more Christ-like. But we can't always see how that is working. So we can consider our trials joyfully because we know that God is work. God in his love has given us trials to test our faith, to develop us, to mature us, to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. And God is not blind to our pain as we go through these trials. He knows what each one of us is going through, and he uses these trials to transform us into people who reflect his glory, who reflect his holiness. So we can count it all joy when we experience trials, not because they're enjoyable, no, but because God is conforming us to the image and character of his son, our savior, Jesus Christ. The second myth we talked about is, is that faith is what we think. That's a myth. Faith is not just what you think. Saving faith goes much deeper than, than simple intellectual knowledge. The point of knowing what God says isn't simply to have head knowledge. You know, I don't know how you were going through school. I often memorized stuff just so I could spout it out at the test time then immediately forgot it, right? That's not what we're to do with God's Word. We're, we're to hear it, absorb it, and then live it out. And hearing God's word and knowing God's word without obeying it, James tells us, is self-deceiving. And a religion or a faith that's believed just cognitively in our minds but isn't lived out, he says, is absolutely worthless. It is unacceptable to God. Faith that isn't lived out is not true saving faith, he says. And he gives us three examples of that. He says, Satan's demons believe there's one God. They have intellectual knowledge. But he also says they shudder because of their knowledge. Why? Because it makes no difference in their lives. And then he points us to Abraham, the father of the faith, if you will. Abraham showed his faith by what he did and were to do the same. Abraham's faith led to actions or, or his faith was made complete by his behavior because faith without works is not saving faith. But it's not just the patriarchs of the faith that prove this. Who else does James give us as an example? Well, he gives us Rahab, 
right? She showed her faith by what she did, not simply by what she knew, not simply by what she said. And so James is teaching us that a believer is not one who intellectually recognizes God but doesn't live out their faith. No. A believer is one who lives out God's truth in everyday life. In other words, we're saved by faith alone. Yes, he and Paul agree with that. We're saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves us is never alone. It always produces works. It has visible acts and evidence to it. So God created us to know him, but we've sinned against him. And being holy, he must judge us for our sins. Our only hope is what? To repent of our sins and have true saving faith in Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who was crucified and raised to life for our salvation. And the third myth that James debunks is that religion is simply a private matter. And that's the way our culture and society looks at any kind of religion today. That's just you and your God don't Tell me about it. But if what James says is true throughout this letter, and it is true, it's God's word, that faith must be acted out, then saving Christian faith cannot merely be a private faith. Yes, it's a personal faith, but it is not private. Both God and his people have to be involved with what we do with our words, our time, our talents, our money, everything else in life. And any religion that consists of more than just thoughts and opinions, ones that involves deeds and actions, cannot be completely private because it impacts those around us. And James knows our relationship with God is often made visible by our relationships with one another. And he stresses that fact. As Christians, our primary obligation in this life is not to ourselves. We're not to live self-centeredly. Our obligation is to God and to the body of Christ that God has placed us into. And we have to realize that our natural selfishness hurts not only ourselves, it hurts those around us, and God will judge us for it. We're to use whatever God has given us to help other people around us. So we have to learn to cherish the opportunity of living in peace by valuing one another and living for one another. So those are the three myths that, that, that James completely debunks. And, and as was shown in the video and as we've seen as we've gone through the book, there are various themes that James touches on. And, and sometimes, yes, the book of James seems a little bit disjointed, but it's all tied together. So, so what are the themes that we've seen throughout this book of James? Well, first of all, in chapter 1, true faith stands up under trials and under pressure. Genuine faith looks at every challenge, every difficulty as an opportunity to grow, to develop a deeper dependence on God. So let me ask you this morning, is that how you view your trials? Is it an opportunity to grow, to become more Christ-like? It should be. Uh, another theme in chapter 2, genuine faith will move us to actions. I mean, true faith in the almighty, all-loving, totally righteous God will change the way we live life. If it doesn't, then James says, you really don't know God nor truly believe him. Because anyone who knows God and believes him will desire to cooperate with him as he transforms us, as he changes us. We'll be motivated to do life in a way that pleases him and not just ourselves. And that affects every aspect, not just of our thoughts, but of our actions as well. And then in chapter 3, the first half of chapter 3, we see that true faith changes how we talk. 
I mean, James gets real personal, doesn't he? He steps on our toes. He, he gives graphic uh, description of the power of the tongue. And a person who truly has faith in God is to be spirit-controlled and is to be self-controlled. We are to build up one another, encourage one another with our speech, not tear them down. So we are to control our tongues. And then fourth, second half of chapter 3, he talks about true faith will motivate us and change the way we think. True faith that God grants us does not think like the world thinks. If we truly have God-given faith and we're growing in our Christian walk, our thinking is going to change. It's going to grow more and more to reflect God's own thinking, God's own character. And that's the way it must be. In chapter 4, true faith avoids worldliness and pursues godliness. You know, that seems really obvious, doesn't it? Well, if we're a Christian, you're going to not be worldly, you want to be godly. But James bluntly states there in chapter 4, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And he makes us think, how friendly am I with the world? He goes on, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's pretty blunt, isn't it? In chapter 5, true faith avoids idolizing and misusing the resources God gives us. And in our society, our country, you know, material things is just about everyone's idol. That's what people live for. But faith, true faith that's combined with God's wisdom, looks at every resource, whether it's time, talent, money, influence, or whatever, as something God has provided. And he intends that we should use it in ways that reflect his love and his character. Faith that's driven by God's wisdom understands that he has provided these things for us to use in a way that pleases him. And James tells us we will give an account for how we have used what God has given to us. Therefore, we should be very wary of selfishness or pride. Our our primary focus should be to use everything in such a way that reflects God's glory, God's character, and God's loving work in our own life. And then in the last half of chapter 5, genuine faith motivates one to wait on the Lord in prayer. You know, we have to be humble enough to ask for help in time of need. We need to look out for others, not just for ourselves. And so these themes kind of run throughout the book of James and tie it together. So, So let's shift gears. We know the Bible is full of commands, right? The Bible has at least 10 commands. We all know that, right? The Ten Commandments. Does the Bible have more commands than that? Yes, it does. A whole bunch more. And these commands and exhortations and instructions are important because they reveal to us not only the character of God, but they tell us what he expects of us. So with that being said, what do you suppose the bossiest book in the Bible is? You might think it's Psalms, right? Psalms is a huge book. And as far as the number of commands, the book of Psalms does win. It has 672 commands in it. Uh, Many of them repeated, like, praise the Lord. That's a command, right? But what book has the highest concentration of commands? Anyone want to take a guess in the Old Testament? Yeah, you're wrong. Any of you think the book of Joel? Probably not, but that is the most... What about the New Testament? I mean, we're talking about James, so what do you think the bossiest book in the New Testament is? You're right. It's the book of James. In this short five-chapter book, 108 verses, he crams in 54 imperatives. 
In other words, around 2.5% of the words in the book of James are commands, imperative verbs in the Greek. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because we've seen how practical this book is. So, so he gives us 54 commands here. Some of them are repeated, and I, well, we'll get into that. But he's telling us how to live, how God wants us to live. Okay, once again, doing these things does not make you a Christian. Doing these things gives evidence that you are a Christian. And if we're truly God's children, we want to obey him. We want to hear from him, take direction from him that is found in the truth of his word. And so we have to be constantly asking ourselves, do I follow God's truth or am I following my own ways? You know, as we went through this book, I mentioned at the very beginning there were 54 commands, but we didn't enumerate them or, or pull them all out separately. So we're going to do that today, okay? So I have a 54-point outline. No, no. James is telling us what true faith looks like. So I'm just going to read the commands for you, okay? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. He must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility. Command number 11, prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. 12, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. 13, listen, my beloved brother, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? 14 and 15, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. 16, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. 17, let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. 18. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. 19. So also, it's literally look or behold, the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts great things. 20. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. 21 and 22. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. 23 and 24. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 25, 26, and 27 are found in chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God. That's a command. Draw near to God. 
and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 28, 29, 30, and 31. Be miserable. That's a command. Mourn. Weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. 32, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. 33, do not speak against one another, brother. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. 34, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. 35 and 36, come now, you rich, weep with howling for your miseries which are coming upon you. 37, behold, look, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord. 38 and 39, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And, and then it doesn't come out in English, but the word is there in the Greek. Behold, look, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. 40 and 41, you too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. 42 and 43, do not complain. Oh man, do we need to hear that one over and over and over again? Do not, that's a command. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, look, see, the judge is standing right at the door. 44, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, Take the prophets, look to the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 45 isn't apparent in the Greek, but it's, Behold, look, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. We need to be reminded of that constantly, don't we? 46 and 47, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. 48 and 49, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Both are commands. 50 and 51, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 52 and 53. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And number 54. My brethren, if any among you strays from the tr truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. <sighs> Made it through all 54, right? Obviously, some of those commands are easier than others for each one of us, but they're all commanded of all of us. And one of the tests of true saving faith is the desire to obey the commands of our Lord. Again, obedience does not bring salvation, it shows salvation. You know, we're probably all familiar with the song, If You're Happy and You Know It, right? Should have had Kent sing it for us this morning. They're all singing it together. If you're happy and you know it, what happens? Your face will surely show it, right? 
And if there's one resounding message in the book of James, it is this. If you have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, then your life and your works will show it. He, he makes the point that to have faith which doesn't motivate you to action is not true saving faith. It's a dead faith. It's a deceiving faith. It's a faith that does not save. True faith is seen by practicing and doing what God's word says. So, so, so how do we do that? How do we get to that point? Well, rely on the Holy Spirit, which means you'll be confessing your sin regularly, right? Uh, resolve to be a strong Christian. Be willing to do what it takes. You know, it's, it, it, obeying God's word is not always easy. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes resolve. Uh, to do it, we have to be in God's word, don't we? We have to know what he commands because this is where God speaks to us. And, and as we read scripture, I'd encourage you, you know, mark out the commands. It, it's okay to write in your Bible, honest, it is. Uh, you know, his promises, his commands, be aware of those things. A ask God to make you aware of opportunities in your daily life to, to practice obedience to his word as you go through your day. And then don't be discouraged by failure. Let me say that again. Don't be discouraged by failure. We all fail, don't we? Yes. Uh, keep in mind, though, that our failures are only temporary, right? We're to keep trying. We're to keep practicing. We're not to quit. Because one day, what? We will see our Savior face to face, and failure will be forgotten. You know, it's important to remember that we're attempting to work with God as he transforms our life in a huge way, right? We're trying to live up to who we actually are in Jesus Christ. We're trying to defy and overcome our old sinful nature that still battles within us. And that's huge. It takes practice. It takes determination. It takes reliance on God on a daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis. So with all that being said in closing, I trust that you've been as convicted as I have by our journey through James. And I pray that we find our time spent here has been useful to us in our own Christian walk and that of those that we interact with. And it's my prayer that if, as we've gone through this book and you've seen, well, my faith isn't really a true faith because I'm not living the life I need to. Repent, turn to God. That's what he wants. And so it's my prayer that God would bless us as, as we grow in grace and truth as we learn to walk victoriously, obeying the commands of Scripture, because God is at work in us, conforming us to the image of Christ. And that's what each and every one of us should desire. Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for this letter of James and for how practical it is to each and every one of us. Father, we thank you for the commands that you have given us in Scripture that, that display your character and what you expect of your children. Father, we thank you that we have been adopted into your family, that we are your sons and your daughters, and it's our desire that we live a life that is pleasing to you. Father, that by our actions, the world would see that we are truly your children. Father, if there are some here this morning that have not truly placed their faith in you, may your spirit draw them to yourself even now, that they might come to a saving knowledge of you and then live the life that you have called them to live. Father, may we be the church that you have called us to be in our interactions with one another. May we build one another up. May we encourage one another. May we help one another in living our Christian life together. So, Father, we thank you for this time that we've had in the book of James, and may you bring it to mind 
uh, in the months and years ahead that we might continue to desire to be obedient to you. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.